Welcome to Questions from the Closet. I'm Ben Shalati. And I'm Charlie Bird. Each episode, we discuss a question we commonly get asked as LGBTQIA Latter-day Saints. We're not trying to answer this question or come to a consensus, but simply sharing our perspectives. Today's question is, what does it mean to be intersex? Ben and I are not terribly diverse, and we share many opinions and life experiences. For example, we both don't really cook very much. However, there are some pretty big differences. For example, Charlie doesn't like to share food, and I do. That makes me sound mean. It, you are mean about it. <laughs> no, I just, I'm very germ aware. Yeah, I... I'm very germ conscious. And so if someone's, like, touched food, then I don't want to eat it. Well, like, I, I'd rather be hungry. <laughs> I don't know what the food was. It was shortly after we moved in together in a platonic way. <laughs> <laughs> and you were, like, making the food and you, like, had something on your plate, like, reach over, like, grab something with my fork. You're like, ew, gross. And you were, like, so disgusted. Yeah. Well, I was like, lesson learned. You know, a lot of the things that people used to, like think I was quirky or weird for germ related are now pretty standard practice in a post COVID or d- during COVID world. And so like, I don't really like shaking people's hands. So I would always be like knuckle touch awkward. Yeah. I don't care. I don't want to touch your hand. I don't know where you've been. And food is like my worst case scenario is when you go to a place and do like, like a hot pot and everyone's like eating out of the same thing. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, it's, so it's excellent but you like it i guess i do like sharing food family style is great also we don't cook i don't know how we both stay alive i well i always had a meal plan like on my mission I, my mom bless my mom she cooked a lot she's amazing even working two jobs like she did great and then on my mission all the hermanas in the ward would be like here's way too much food for anyone <laughs> to handle so i just stock up on that and then i always had a meal plan and an athlete plan so i moved to new york in the first week, I set the fire alarm off six times. Oh my gosh! In the apartment <laughs> complex, uh, like the whole building, and uh, I bad. was just trying to make eggs. Well, I can make eggs. But... I can now too. It took some while. Okay. Some time. What do you eat? Just. Well, I usually have like cereal for breakfast. No, Charlotte cooks for you a lot. Charlotte cooked me dinner tonight. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's stop talking about our food. We like to provide a variety of voices and perspectives, and today we're joined by Blair Osler. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Happy to have you here, Blair. So before we get to know you a little bit, I just want to share a little bit about our, my experience like inviting you to be on the podcast. So, oh my gosh, I'm excited. I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> so so there was, this was months ago. I was invited to give a fireside, and then the fireside was planned, and then the fireside was canceled because a uh, high council on the stake listened to an episode of our podcast. And we interviewed someone who was in a same-sex marriage, and he said, I don't feel comfortable with who Ben spends his time with. And so the oh. fire side got canceled. And I said, isn't that what they said about Jesus? Oh. Uh, <laughs> but, it, but it didn't change what, you know, what happened. And you and I have differences of opinions. And part of me was worried about having you on and how people would perceive that. But then as I thought about it, I realized you know, Blair has knowledge that I don't have. And also, I read one of your posts on Instagram about being intersex, and I just like felt strongly that your story needed to be told. And I just wanted to do whatever I could to elevate your voice. So I'm so glad to have you on. I'm glad to be here. And I'm actually so glad that you were just direct, upfront, and honest, shared your concerns with me. I think that's the best way to kind of approach these things. Because yes, we do talk about some uncomfortable things here. And we do have different experiences for each other. So I feel like just directness and honesty, kindness and compassion is the best way to move forward. And just recognizing it's a controversial topic. So everybody's risking a certain amount of social capital whenever they engage in this kind of space. Yeah. Have you found like difficulty as you talk about this, like people saying, oh, you talk to so-and-so, you know, we don't trust you anymore, that kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, I, I actually get it from both sides of the aisle. Yeah. Um, I, I get a lot of negative feedback sometimes that my ideas are too controversial for your average Latter-day Saint and that it's not necessarily something that's directed from the right line of authority. I'm kind of a free thinker that way. So is Joseph Smith. So is Brigham Young. So is Orson Pratt. So are a lot of people. I'm not. I'm very in the part of the book. <laughs> and um, I also get <laughs> some feedback sometimes from disgruntled or post or ex-Mormons who think that I'm too faithful or I'm too gentle to the brethren or that I need to relinquish my faith in Mormonism and the church and in LDS settings because I have Stockholm syndrome. So I get negative feedback everywhere I go. So I'm kind of just comfortable with it at this point, knowing wherever I go, it's going to upset someone. And honestly, just being intersex, 
no matter where you go, it's going to upset someone. So at the end of the day, I got to be comfortable with me so I can put my head down at my pillow at night, say my prayers and know I just did the best I could for the day. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Well, and and, and thank you for sharing that, Blair. And, you know, I'm about a third of the way through your book, Queer Mormon Theology. And once again, like there are things in there like I probably wouldn't say, but I just like love your hopefulness. Like your book just feels so hopeful. You're like, I am going to like Mormonism is expansive. I am going to like, and I am hopeful in this expansion. I just like feel that from you. I'm so glad. And it was, it was meant to be a joyful book. We have a lot of books related to LGBTQ issues in the church and they're not always joyful. And I want to respect and honor that space because it's not always a joyful experience, but I wanted to share something that was inside of me. And it was this love of Mormonism, love of gospel, love of my heritage, love of my religion and faith, but also the love of my body, the love of my queerness, the love of what my heavenly parents gave me. And I don't feel like I have to not love either of those. I, I wish that we all did better as a community at supporting each other wherever we're at. And that's something that I feel like I've been flip flopped a lot because I came out and was immediately like super accepted by LGBTQ plus circles and like kind of shunned by religious circles. And I was really shocked by that because I was like, nothing changed about what I'm doing. I just, all I said, I said, I'm gay. And all of a sudden it was like polarization and I'm on one side. And then I wrote my book and Deseret Book published it. And immediately, like as soon as it was announced, it was a flip. And then the religious circles like accepted me and like, were championing me. Whereas some of my gay friends were like, I can't believe you would say that. And I'm like, I didn't say that. (laughs) And so we just all live in this, like, I don't, I feel like there's so many assumptions that get made all the time based on who you interact with. And that's why I try to interact with as many people as possible. And I catch myself doing that sometimes too. And being like, Oh, well they hang out with this person. So they must believe this and feel this way. And that's not how I feel on like, both sides of what I don't even think should be sides. I couldn't agree with you more. Isn't it exhausting to be in the middle? It it is exhausting in many ways. I mean, I've been booed at pride parades for being Mormon, and I've been told I can't speak in certain uh, sacrament settings. So it's very difficult to be in a space where you're constantly feeling like you're being silenced just for existing, in my case, like hashtag literally born that way. And so it is exhausting. But for me, I'm kind of done playing into those games, and I know the things I say do make people uncomfortable, but it makes people uncomfortable on both polar extremities. So when I say things like, I'm here to support queer Mormons wherever you are in your experience. If you're at a gay bar on Sunday night, I'm going to support you. If you are in the temple in a mixed orientation marriage, I support you. And that makes both sides really, really upset. This idea of just supporting queer people where they are and trying to find their way through this. And I, I mean, that's all I really needed in my journey was just someone to say, you know what, Blair, your happiness is worth striving for. I trust you know what's best for you right now. Yeah, love that. I think that's great. Yeah, great. Well, we didn't introduce you to the audience. So, oh. so, sorry. <laughs> Hello, so, audience. I, but I feel like they know a lot yeah. about it. So. <laughs> so, uh, so just give us the main Blair facts. Absolutely. My name is Blair Osler. I am a active member of the queer community. I'm bisexual and intersex. Sometimes I go with non-binary, but my favorite label is queer. I have a couple of degrees. I have a degree in fine arts. I have a degree in philosophy with an emphasis in queer studies. I've written a book, Queer Mormon Theology. I've also been published in some theological reviews and journals. I also have a husband and three kids. I'm a lifelong Mormon, lifelong member of the church. I often and joke that if there's such a thing as Mormon DNA, I have it as a ninth generation Mormon. Ninth. But a ninth generation, my kids are tenth. So we oh were among gosh. the first 150 members to be baptized. And funnily wow. enough, you were making a comment about incestuous dating earlier. I just want to it <laughs> oh, de- define what I was saying. <laughs> just you may, you may some... want to edit that. <laughs> <laughs> I was just saying Sorry. how sometimes... In the gay community in Utah, people date the same people a lot. Over and over. That's what I meant. (laughs) And what I was going to say, in the Mormon community, I ended up marrying my seventh cousin, and I didn't even know it, because in the Mormon community, 
you're eventually related one way or another. But well, anyway, luckily there's an so app for that. There is an app for that now. <laughs> there true. is an app for that. There wasn't back when I was dating. Seventh is fine. Um, That's pretty distant. Seventh is totally fine, right? But anyway, so we're both ninth generation Mormons. Kids are tenth generation Mormons. Got the Mormon genes and the Mormon DNA. And I also joke too that if there's such a thing as queer DNA, queer genes, I got those too. So when people say these two things don't belong together, I'm like, uh-uh. I'm not going to rip myself in half to make you feel better about the world. They exist both inside me. Wonderful. Great. Well, Blair, I've heard you talk about like the sacredness of bodies before. Yeah. Tell me, you know, what what is your view of like the holiness and sacredness of the human body? So I really feel like a lot of that was shaped one by my Mormon upbringing and the fact that I was raised by a, a doctor, a physician, a surgeon. And I was taught a profound reverence for the human body in Mormonism and that it was my second most valuable and powerful gift that I was given. The first one was my agency and the second one was my body. And without a body, we could not achieve a fullness of joy. So the body was an important tool. It's a powerful tool and it's necessary to my fulfillment of joy. At the same time, being raised by a doctor, a lot of reverence and respect for like, I'll say the magical qualities and aspects of what a body does and especially my body it doesn't always work the way I want it to or function the way I want it to but at the same time my body is magical it Mm -hmm. heals things I've healed broken bones I've birthed babies I have done magical things with my body and so sometimes people shy away from talking about the body but I I want to embrace it I want to talk about all the things the body does because it's a powerful divine tool given to each of us for a purpose for our happiness Love that. So I'm often asked what the I in LGBTQIA plus stands for, and it stands for intersex. And I'm super excited to have you on. I feel like this is something that is largely unknown, pretty taboo. It kind of shocks people and like just like interrupts their like you were saying, interrupts their idea of what life is. Right. And yeah. So in- we're ready for our education. OK, let's let's <laughs> let's break it down. OK, for starters, let's just have a basic understanding of biological sex to begin with. There are certain anatomical points, data points in your body that constitutes your biological sex assignment. And those can probably be broken down into about five categories. We got your chromosomes. People know about those. We've got your external genitalia. We've got hormones. We've also got gonads and gametes, and these apply to all the genders. And then lastly, you have internal reproductive anatomy, okay? And so within these five parts, usually we have what's called bimodal assignments, which means most people usually fall within two categories, which is the male assignment or the female assignment, okay? And usually the way they line up is on this side where we have female, we have, okay, you have XX chromosomes, you have external genitalia that involves a vagina, labia, clitoris, vulva. Oh, apologies to anybody who is not used to accurate medical terminology. <laughs> this is table conversation, dinner table conversation at my family. So um, I probably should have started with a warning. I will be using medical terminology throughout uh, the uh explanation. Please do. So perfect. Awesome. And so these are all what we would assign estrogen and progesterone hormones usually associated with women. So you got all that going on. You also have ovaries, which are just female gonads, testes for men. And you have gametes, which are just the reproductive cells. So for women, eggs, for men, sperm, you know, this is what the biological sex assignment is, right? And everybody's like, okay, great. Yeah. Men fall in this category. Women fall in this category. And I'm going to stick a pin briefly just in trans identities for a minute and stick with the biological sex assignments just to not confuse people for a minute. Okay, so along those biological sex assignments, people think, okay, you belong in one or two categories. And most people do. But there's this biological variance that exists between these two categories. People want to say that gender is a spectrum. I also often remind people biological sex is also a spectrum because there's things that fit in between here. So let's go through a few examples of what that would look like for people. So intersex is anything in that middle part, that middle part of the spectrum. You got male over here, female over here. And the only thing, so defining intersex is tricky too, because the only thing that seems to hold intersex people together, that somewhere along the way, there was some sort of abnormality in their sexual development, in their biological sexual development. So these conditions 
there's hundreds of them. And so when you say, oh, are you intersex? No two intersex people are the same. The medications are the same. Surgeries aren't the same. Nothing about them is really going to be the same. It's going to be very different. So let's talk about a few examples just to give you a visual of what I'm talking about. So let's look at chromosomes. People are like, oh, there's only two sets, right? You have XX and you have XY. It's like, wait a minute. Not so. Not so fast. There are a few different karyotypes that we're working with here. One such example is XXY. And this this is a uh, Klinefelter syndrome, okay? And some, some, and what they would assign to be, again, sticking a pin in trans issues for a minute, um, what they would assign to be male with XXY chromosomes and has an extra chromosome in there. Let's talk about hormones for a minute, okay? So we think, oh, testosterone higher, higher levels for men and estrogen and progesterone are higher for women. But fun fact, all bodies contain various levels of all these hormones. So all these hormones exist in all bodies. It's just the levels are different for different people. But for people who have androgen insensitivity syndrome, so they would look to what people would assign as a feminine or woman body, okay? But yet their testosterone levels are off the charts. But the testosterone is not affecting them because they have androgen insensitivity syndrome. Mm. Their body almost... Uh, is immune to the effects of testosterone. So they would have X, wait, XY chromosomes, but present female. Yeah, or they have, they have XY, but they're resistant to the male hormone. Exactly. And so these chromosomes aren't necessarily mashing up. So it would be someone who looks uh, aesthetically as a female, a female but, but they have male. XY chromosomes, just like I'm guessing you two have. I, I um, haven't checked, but... <laughs> <you're> <laughs> like, I've never checked. We'll find out. So that's another example. With gonads and gametes, we have what's called ovotestes, which is uh, gonads that share both testicular tissue and ovarian tissue. And this is a natural phenomenon of variants that just exists in reality. Uh, some of the other ones, internal reproductive anatomy and hormones. That's me. That's what I have. All sorts of weird things going on there. And we'll probably get to that later in the podcast, but I don't want to deter from the biology lesson for a minute here. And so all these different variances and conditions that can exist within that spectrum are what people would consider to be intersex. However, it is also worth noting that even in the medical community, the biology community, these labels and ideas and definitions are constantly changing. So for example, it used to be called hermaphroditism. <laughs> and that has fallen out of favor for a few reasons. One, just for stigma reasons. It like kind of was... Yeah, exactly. It was kind of used as a derogatory term. For sure. um, the other reason is, is it's just not actually even accurate <laughs> because true hermaphroditism in the animal kingdom, think of uh, banana slugs. They possess both male and female reproductive organs. So when two banana slugs get together to reproduce and they have sex, both impregnate and get pregnant at the same time. What? So banana slugs? That's crazy. I know, right? <laughs> Hermaphroditism. It's really cool. And this is, again exists naturally within the world around us. And there's nothing immoral about banana slugs. That's just how they were designed. Well, I've right? stepped on one before and it felt immoral. <laughs> it felt immoral to... to Have you ever stepped on a slug barefoot? It happens not all the not. time in Washington, oh, but God. every once in a while. I haven't either. It's I really, I never it, have that experience. It's disgusting. It's I the can't worst. say that I have. The good news is for banana slugs, they don't have to look for a partner of the right gender or anything to reproduce. It's just looking for any old partner. <laughs> so that's true, hermaphroditic. And so that term kind of fell out of favor for a lot of reasons. And then intersex was embraced. And intersex has gone through various definitions itself, which is funny because under some definitions of intersex, I would not be considered intersex. And then under other definitions of intersex, I am defined as intersex. So even then, it's really funny because if I'm going into a medical situation in which I'm trying to get a diagnosis, in theory... Yesterday, I was not intersex, and today I am intersex, depending on what the medical criterion is at the the day of the appointment. So that is speak. very confusing. It is. So some people want to argue, and all these arguments Blair, are... you just don't belong anywhere. I, do I, exactly. No, no, no. Oh, we will get to that. <laughs> no, no, we will no. get to that. Um, you belong with us. <laughs> to the personal experience. <laughs> So when you're going into a space where the term itself is still under scrutiny and definition of trying to figure out what's going on and things like that, 
also brought into the mix is all sorts of biases, political agendas, queer agendas, all the agendas. And I'm not one to well, pretend. Even like gender stereotypes. Exactly. Like, exactly. Definitely gender stereotypes. All the sorts, way we split people. Yep. Exactly. And a lot of them are predicated on exactly what you're talking about, the gender binary, as far yeah. as like this is correct and anything in between is a mistake. And we're going to surgically alter it. We're going to medicate it. We're going to perform all sorts of aesthetic uh, surgeries or procedures to make sure that we have this illusion of a biological sex gender binary and it's just not the case so i do want to at least say up front that some people will be like well blair that's not intersex and i hear you loud and clear but tomorrow it might be and then tomorrow it might not be again and then yeah. the next day it may be so for some people they'll claim the only thing that counts as true intersex is what I'm going to say air quotes here, ambiguous genitalia, which is a term I really, really, really don't like because there is nothing ambiguous about someone's genitals. They are what they are. Just right. because you can't classify them into a binary category doesn't mean they're ambiguous. It just means they're non-binary genitals. Well, and they I fit. also feel like in, even in the binary, there's a lot of variance. So Absolutely. Just, Absolutely. Just trying to classify something that has a lot of variance as is already as it is so some people will be like oh it only has to do with the genitals and people and then some trans people might raise their hand and say great so if i get surgery i am 100 percent woman at that point because it's only about genitals right and i can have the surgically constructed and say and then people go oh trans people not so fast it's actually chromosomes and like oh, okay well i can't change my chromosomes yet with current technology but what about women with androgen sensitivity syndrome so you're going to call that woman a man, man, because she has XY chromosomes, require her to go to a male bathroom, required to, I mean, she has a vagina, uterus, breasts, the works, fully functioning body. And you're going to say, oh, it's actually chromosomes. So you need to go into the men's bathroom and you need to perform all these other things. It's like, well, no, not exactly, because it does. Aesthetics do matter. Morphology does matter. And so, again, we keep going round and round in circles, constantly trying to classify people into a biological sex category when it's not as binary as we are imagining. One more thing moving forward in the lesson that's worth um, saying. So people will be like, well, now, wait a second, Blair. I should, I should say that. Well, wait a second, Blair. <laughs> wait a second, Blair. <laughs> wait a second, Blair. <laughs> wait a second, you Blair. haven't considered this. <laughs> yeah. Wait, what is it that we haven't considered? No, I'll, 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 do, I'll do the counter arguments for you. I'll do my arguments and the counter arguments. <laughs> No, and some people will be saying, well, Blair, if you're up to date on the latest data and research, you'd actually see that the term intersex is now starting to fall out of favor as well. And here is why. Oh, people are no, just finding out just, what it means. We just, <laughs> you just found out. Exactly. And this is why I still use the term intersex, because barely anyone knows what intersex is, and even less people knows what the new term is, which is disorders in sexual development. Okay. And so it's been brought into a new category, and this is, can be seen in the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostics of Psychiatric Statistics and things like that. We know it well. We're both therapists. Oh, so you know. Okay, so good. <laughs> I don't even have to explain this. So in the DSM-5, it talks about disorders in sexual development, and especially in relation to gender dysphoria. Right. So previously in the DSM-3, it was, I have to be careful how I say this, it's the same thing with intersex. Yesterday you weren't intersex and today you are, based upon definitions. So basically, being intersex exempt you from being capable of being diagnosed with gender dysphoria because being intersex meant you had this weird liberation, this weird sense of agency that you kind of, you got to be able to pick. And so yeah. in theory, whatever you were, whatever you were experiencing, whatever you're feeling, it wasn't gender dysphoria because you were born with this weird non-binary biology that you, you get to pick one. And of course it always is. You pick one, you can't have both. You got to pick one, mm -hmm. but you at least get the agency to choose that. And so in a weird way, intersex people are granted more liberation and freedom and agency to determine their gender presentation than other people are, than trans or because even cis people. Because they can back it up with a biological aspect. Exactly. Yeah, now, this sense. is also changing because in the latest DSM-5, they've taken away that criteria. And so in the latest DSM-5, intersex people are now allowed to experience gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. So whatever I experienced 10 years ago was not gender dysphoria. And whatever I'm experiencing today is it gender is so another way to look at it is, um, so this is where it's interesting, the, the nomenclature changing 
can have a change on the experience, but at the same time, the experience was happening long before there was a change in nomenclature. So sure. I, I, have, I have a question. Yes, please. Well, wait a second, Blair. Yes. Uh, <laughs> how, how often or how common is it for people who are intersex to identify as trans? Oh, that's a great question. That and one question. we do not we have. Don't we don't know. <laughs> and do you want to know why? We don't even know how many intersex people there are because we can't even get a head count because people can't even agree on a definition. The rough estimate is for intersex population is about 1.5%. The, the, of, the, the, of the total population. Yes. The common thing to say is they're so as common as redheads. If you know a redhead, you know an intersex person and gotcha. you may not know it, but we're here. So we, there, we there are a lot of intersex people you. in Scotland. And yeah, I, uh, exactly. exactly. I appreciate the way you broke it yeah. into the five aspects because I feel like that really helps me understand that that one in a hundred could be like a- anywhere on an intersex spectrum. I think that was really helpful for me, like thinking about like, I don't know, graphically, the ways that it's possible to be intersex. Absolutely. And if you think about it, too, people want to think about categories as distinct, separate silos. So right. then we now we now we got but they cross. Exactly. It's like totally. now, now we've got three categories, guys. Check it out. We have male, we have intersex and we have female. And I also want to go like, oh, but not so fast, because even within those categories, there's kind of overlap. So for someone like me, I identify as an intersex woman because the majority of my traits and characteristics lean towards women or or woman. And that's kind of where I sit along that spectrum. But someone who sits at that spectrum, the same as me, could also identify as non-binary intersex or something else. I sometimes go with the term non-binary too, because it helps kind of identify the experience. But for the most part, this is why I just love the identity label queer. It just lets you know there's something with my biology, there's something with my gender and something with my orientation. And queer just covers all that. And I don't have to necessarily go into a biological yeah exactly or a lecture to be able to explain to you this is why it's just like oh Blair's queer we're just gonna you know (laughs) and I will disclose what I want to disclose at whatever time feels right I I have another question so someone could be intersex yes or experience an intersex condition yeah and still not identify as intersex (gasps) that is a wonderful question so the majority of people who are intersex usually do surveys say that usually do just identify with one of the binaries and i hate the word normal but live their lives as normal men and women or as cis men and women and conform into that binary the question is is why and mental health and stigma against non-binary biology people aren't parading in the streets being like hey check out me i have you know non-binary genitals no there's so much same and stigma around that to where like it's not something people are like really going to want to be in the closet about even more so than like you know being attracted to the member of a same sex or um something like that so there is a significant amount of stigma that would continue to put and i i succumbed to that totally i was for me to suppress my masculine characteristics and qualities was essential that eventually it was like if 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 you just get for, far enough to that side of the spectrum you won't be clockable anymore pass. no one will ever know and i'll be I'll, I'll be a real girl you know <laughs> what i mean and so it was that kind of attitude that put me in very dangerous and risky situations as far as like, like with your mental health mental health and with actual physical medications surgeries oh, yeah. and trying to fit a binary that maybe I was never ever meant to fit into after all. So I'm thinking about like sexual and reproductive development and how it kind of is drawn out over the course of life and it just I to correct me if I'm wrong but logically it seems like some of these conditions are visible known at birth but some of them can develop later as you're going through puberty and like developing your body and I'm just wondering how often it is that like, because I imagine with this desire, like social desire to fit in one of the binaries, if a child is born, it would be easier to like surgically alter then. But like, what if you get it wrong? Or like, what if the kid's like, why did you surgically alter my body without... I don't know. I'd, absolutely. So just a lot. let's unpack a that lot a little bit. Yes, absolutely. So let's unpack that a little bit. How does someone know they're intersex? Well, they usually find out in a few different periods in their life. The first one would be at birth. And at birth, you would find out probably exclusively 
because you have non-binary genitals because that's how they determine it at birth and mark your birth certificate. The next step in life is usually somewhere around puberty. So for example, an intersex guy, and this has actually, this has actually happened, discovered that he had severe abdominal pain and couldn't figure out where the abdominal pain was. He had a fully functioning he uterus and he was menstruating oh my with no way to release the menstruate oh, because he had a penis, not a vagina. And so he had to go into emergency surgery, took care of that and everything. But he had no idea he was intersex until puberty because it had nothing to do with his genitals. The next phase and when someone might find out they're intersex is when they go to try to reproduce because it is a disorder and a sexual development. And the intersex, uh, well, I would say the biological sex categories are predicated on the idea of biological reproductive utility. Okay. And so if you can't fit that reproductive utility, I would say even infertile people classify as a certain type of intersex sex condition because the fulfillment of that biological reproductive utility is off in some way and the latest definition of intersex which is now dsd disorders and sexual development well that falls under there too now so the next phase when someone would find out is when they go to reproduce and there's problems there and find out oh my gosh there's weird things going on for me it was the puberty reproducing phase it was Mm -hmm. about from like i didn't start menstruating until way later in life and they're like wow i'm just not menstruating lucky me right i didn't start menstruating until I was 17, which is way late. Some you know people start when they're 12 and things like that. I was like, okay, yeah. So it turns out I had weird hormone things going on, had no idea. And then once I did start menstruating, I started vomiting and getting sick. It was not a regular. That sounds very unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, it was quite unpleasant. And I still have to be medicated every time I menstruate. All throughout my whole life, I've had to because my body was not meant to do the typical biological reproductive utility track. But anyway, I digress. The next time someone might find out their intersex after reproductive utility is just out of questioning, well, maybe there is something wrong with me. Because if you don't have non-binary genitals, if you don't have any serious problems during puberty, and you never try to go to reproduce and have any problems, you may go your entire life having an intersex condition and and just not knowing it. And for some people, this could just be a convenient form of birth control because they're like oh this intersex condition makes me not be able to get pregnant oh it's free birth control so it really just depends on the person i actually have a third party story about that Uh (laughs) uh-huh so i'm in a a human sexuality course right now and we on tuesday we were talking about intersex and my professor was talking about a client that she had who was a woman and got married in the temple was trying to reproduce and having like couldn't have babies and went to the doctor and found out that she had androgen insensitivity syndrome. So she like presented female, but actually had XY chromosomes and was genetically male. And I was just thinking about that. And I was like, oh my gosh, this woman who's married finds out that she's actually like low key a guy. <laughs> right. So this can do all sorts like, of things to your mental health. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, how would you cope? Imagine the stresses and the questions and, and really the, the shame, the shame, but like the feeling like you're a defect or broken or there was something wrong. I feel like that would be so difficult to deal with and manage because we're talking about this and, and see, I'm just thinking about my experience as kind of like defying gender norms by being gay. And that's been like decriminalized. It's been de-disordered in most societies. So like, I don't really talk about being gay as if it's a disorder. I'm just like, this is part of who I am. And it's a little bit jarring to hear you talk about your queerness with terminology new terminology that centers around disorder. So that's the other tricky thing. So some people are now advocating with the newest terminology. So we move from hermaphroditism hermaphroditism to intersex to disorders and sexual development. And some people are very unhappy about this because it's like, why is it a disorder for me to be be born born. this way? Uh Like, and when I say born this way, I'm not saying it like a catchphrase or a metaphor. I'm saying literally coming out of your, you know, your, your, your mother 
other that way. And so some people advocate for it, and I actually I'm I'm in this camp too. Here's my bias is that it's not it's not disorders in sexual development. It's difference in sexual development mm. or divergence in sexual development. And you see a lot of this. This is the intersection between queerness and disabilities, right? That we treat intersex as if it is a disability that needs to be diagnosed as a disorder, as opposed to being like, you know what, this is a natural human variation that keeps occurring so much so that you keep having to like medicate and surgically alter people that maybe we just recognize that this is just a natural occurring variance within the human species. But that would require a lot of desigmatization about a few things. One, just the gender binary, but also the idea that the sole purpose of the gender or biological sex is sexual reproduction. You know what I mean? And that hurts a lot of people as far as like, especially like women who want to have children and can't like a lot of women would see that some women would see that as a threat to one's gender identity because they cannot fulfill the purpose or the biological utility that they were told that that was that was supposed to be. So that's kind of what happened with me. When I started menstruating during puberty, we realized this is not a regular menstrual cycle and this is not a regular reaction to menstruating. Cramps are normal, on your knees, vomiting, were, not being able to... Were you to... guys concerned when you were like 14, 15, 16? So not totally because it isn't unheard of to not start late and some people do just start late and especially if you are an athlete, it can delay the onset of pubescent development. So for and example, I was a competitive gymnast. Totally. Um, I know a lot of gymnasts who have had late periods. Exactly. And so being a competitive gymnast, I was pretty good at it. I competed both in school and privately. And so it just was an assumption and like, oh, you just have no body fat, you're rock hard, and you're just a gymnast and an athlete, which, you know, who who knew? Maybe my testosterone gave me to my (laughs) testosterone gave me a little extra edge there. But so it wasn't until start of the period that like this is not normal. And then after that, I didn't have a period for a year after that. That is also not normal. It just no. happened. It's and a hit then and run. it was a hit and a run. One hit wonder. It was like, I don't know what, what just happened there. And wait, it was, wait a minute. Can I? Yeah, did you think you were pregnant? Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, I have so many friends. That, who, would, require, who, who never, that would require I, me to divulge that I was sexually active, no, which I refuse to divulge. You are more logical than a lot of girls I know. Because I know a lot of friends who have, are like terrified that they're pregnant because they're three days late. And I'm like, girl, you're you, not. Yeah, <laughs> that's not how it works. <laughs> just, anxiety is crazy. So, so you told us before we started recording you got married at 19. Yes. So this is all happening like right before yeah, I met my eternal companion. Oh my gosh. <laughs> also, you said you had three kids. I do have Are those three. biological the, children? Yes, the miracle of technology. We'll get to this, Charlie. So much more to be want, said about that. Tell us your whole story. wrinkle the time and get all the information now. Yeah, we realized something was going on, but it wasn't necessary as far as like diving into my uterus and cutting me open to see exactly what was going on at that point. There was no need to. And so it just was what it was uh, for whatever reason we didn't know had really painful periods we had I had some uh, ultrasounds and things like that just to make sure you know I didn't have like cancer or something like that so anyway I eventually got married and eventually went on to be like oh we're, we're we're ready to start our family right and my husband knew before we got married that I did have some problems and that maybe maybe children wouldn't be in the cards for me. You know what I mean? But, you know, he's a great guy and he's like, you're more than your uterus. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Aww. When guys say the bare minimum, that, it's just like, oh. Wait a second, Blair. <laughs> yeah. Was that the yeah. actual phrase he said? No, it okay. wasn't. I'm being sarcastic a little bit because I make fun because sometimes when guys do the bare minimum in heterosexual relationship, it's like, oh, my gosh, isn't he sweet? But um. No, my my husband actually is fantastic, and he was he was very supportive the entire way through, and actually was part of the reason why I ended up getting my tubes tied so I could never get pregnant again, which we'll get to that eventually. So anyway, we uh, were trying to get pregnant. We couldn't get pregnant. <laughs> and we're like, what's going on? Like, are, are we are we doing it right? Like, <laughs> how, how is this not working for us? And realized that I have a 
Okay, so there's a condition called a bicornate uterus. And that's a rare condition, but it's relatively common amongst rare conditions. So my uterus started off as that at one point. But what happened somewhere, even in the development of the abnormality, there was more abnormalities that it started to basically fall apart and tilt and shift in, wrong, in, the, in the wrong direction. So, so if you sideways. think about... Yes, exactly. So when you think about... So all my, my pregnancies, when I did eventually get pregnant, were all transverse, meaning their head is over here on this side of the hip and their feet are over here. Baby's not coming out that way, by the way. Yeah. Also, um, thank you for just being so open with all this. Yeah, this is very so so information. Okay. okay, so you had a sideways uterus. Um, yeah, so it's, it's sideways and tilted the wrong direction, meaning tilted backwards. So if you think about where the sperm has to go, like if you have the vaginal canal the cervix that connects to the uterus and i just realized i'm talking to gay men who probably don't have a significant interest in the female anatomy i've been working on it for this class i learned a lot in the past two weeks i'm so happy can you explain to me what a uterus is again (laughs) i'm just like what (laughs) i did take college biology and so if you think about um you're so right i don't know (laughs) i know i can see it in your eyes i can see it in your eyes so you know what this is i'm like "Uh uh-huh totally i know what that is triangle inside your stomach <laughs> Not even close. Um, uh, so anyway, you have the vaginal canal that goes through the cervix that enters into the uterus, and that's where the sperm has to go up through the fallopian tubes, out where the ovaries, and that's where the eggs are. Right. So that's the general idea of where things are going. Nothing could get there because my uterus was the wrong shape. It was tilted backwards in the wrong direction. So, like, if you think mm. of a sper- sperm like trying to swim up and then down and around, it's, it's like, like a, it's, it's like, like a labyrinth. Maze. It's like yeah, a maze. Yeah. At the same time, my hormones were causing irregular ovulation cycles, and I had no idea if I was even releasing an egg or if I even had eggs that were functional. You know what I mean? Mm. So, long story short. Lots of treatments, lots of scheduled unprotected sex. The magic and miracle. That of, sounds so I, magical. <laughs> it so it wasn't people. I know. So people think like, oh, and it's so beautiful. We got pregnant. I'm like, no, we had scheduled sex on a timer with specific medications and ways that this had to be done in order to, you know, make this happen. And it yeah. happened. And my husband's very proud of himself. It's very <laughs> you know, well, triumph, triumphant masculinity for him. But we were able to get pregnant it was an absolutely horrible excruciating pregnancy it was um my hormones all out of whack Uh, i was on bedridden for a few uh, for a while had to go in and out of the er i had a few other complications that took place because again disorders and sexual development like if you see all the lists of them you'll see pictures of my body in those textbooks But we got through it. And some women talk about postpartum depression. And I have what's called postpartum elation. (laughs) Some euphoria. It is euphoria all the way because my body is not meant to bring bodies into the world. It's dangerous. It's hard. it's, It's harmful. But in my mind... I felt a profound sense of proving my womanhood that if I could just do this, I would I'd I'd be a real girl, you know, that this would be the thing. This would be the thing. Was that like overt in your mind? Like I need to prove my womanhood or was that just like subconscious? So it wasn't overt at first in the first pregnancy. It wasn't. It was more just like this burning desire to do this thing. And I didn't know where the desire come from. Or maybe it was this biological clock. Maybe it was my heavenly parents talking to me. Maybe it was my my gender dysphoria being like, you know what, you, you, you can do this, you can get through this. And it, it wasn't really relevant as far or sorry, I shouldn't say relevant, it wasn't really pronounced until later. So I had our first child and that was great and everything. And we're like, we want we want another one. We want another little one so they can play together. And same thing happened again. It was difficult, excruciating, took a little less time to get pregnant this time because we knew what all the problems were and how to uh, mitigate and medicate. All those scheduled unprotected sex Exactly right. It was just, all right, it's 8.15, pants off, let's go. So (laughs) after the... That's the reality of getting in their sex girl pregnant. Blair, the children. <laughs> um, what about the children? The listening? children. The children. I, um, my children are so used to it at this point, you know. Um, they're like, yeah, mom's queer. They're the cutest. Um, anyway, so we got pregnant with our second son. And so we had these two beautiful, amazing boys survived. And it was wonderful. Life is good. But for whatever reason, it wasn't enough. 
it just wasn't enough. Like all the other Mormon moms had the whole group of kids and da da da. And I just had this profound need to just fit in to be the woman that I was supposed to be and assigned to be and destined to be in ways that weren't healthy at this point. Did those two pregnancies like change your body in ways that made it more dangerous to get pregnant? I, I don't know if it would mean more dangerous. Not the first two, no. It was the third one that really did And mean. these are cesarean births. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. So these are plan C-sections with multiple surgeons, pediatricians, uh, all sorts of on-call doctors. Like these were C-sections that were like surrounded. Like I, they're, they're bringing I, in the works. Exactly. So I've talked about it in other places, but I won't, so I won't repeat the story, but it's the weirdest thing to be numb from the waist down, half naked from the waist down, and be surrounded by at least six plus doctors trying to safely extract a human from your body mm. surgically. And, and so you couldn't have had a natural birth. That was just not possible. It would, it would have killed me and, it and my child. It would have killed us both. So, yeah. Wow. And we tried to do all the regular home remedies, you know, external versions, trying to manipulate the body and things like that. My uterus was not having that, along with some other complications. I had polyhydromnios, which for funsies is when your body just keeps producing amniotic fluids. So I had a child swimming in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Oh when people saw me, they were like, are you having triplets? I'm like, nope, just the one intersex girl coming through. Okay, just back it on up. Um, I bet they're good swimmers, though. <laughs> <laughs> they, they actually are. They love the water. Um, they're they're delightful. After the C-section of our second child, he actually had some complications due to the shape and size and morphology of my uterus, to which his head actually got stuck up inside my uterus, and the umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck. And so every time they tried to pull him out, you know, they cut, they cut you open and everything. And every time they pull him out by... You know their feet. Like choking. They were strangulating him. Oh my gosh! And so the C-section took longer than I remembered, and I remember feeling very nervous on the operating table, and my heart rate was spiking. And you and can't feel anything. You're just like you can't feel anything from the waist down. Anxious in your mind, like what's happening because you don't know. Oh my exactly. gosh! Exactly. This is not a regular birthing oh story in the pool with the music and the everything. It's like. Let's have a priesthood blessing that no one dies tonight. Okay, wow. that's 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 what birth is. So he I'm came. On the edge of my seat I know. Right so he he was finally out, and all you feel because because you're numb from the waist down, but you can feel pressure and tension, and there was a total release of pressure, and so it was like mm. it was like having something very heavy lifted off my abdomen, but there's no like pain of like a scalpel or anything like that, and I exhaled a sigh of relief, and I was like, oh, he's out. But there was no sound whatsoever. It's just silence. And I tell you, as a parent, after having a human extracted from your body, and silence is the worst thing you could ever hear. Yeah. And so um, my heart rate went back up again, and I started getting a little antsy and given the anesthesiologist lip and being like, why isn't my baby crying? I can't hear him. And I kept saying, I can't hear him. I can't hear him. I can't hear him. And then there's just rustling in the room. And again, there's a big blue sheet right up in front of you because they won't let you watch the C-section because people will rightfully so kind of freak out. Yeah. So I can't see anything. All I can rely on is my ears. Oh, have you gone to like therapy for oh, this experience? Oh, I've been in okay. years I, of okay. therapy. I'm like really years stressed out therapy. for this traumatic birth experience for you. <laughs> and so he is, he, he finally got out and I just kept saying, I can't hear anything. I can't hear anything. And then I hear pediatricians wrestling and saying, okay, get him on the table, pump him, pump him again. And all I hear mm. is clicking of machines and then saying to pump him. And I'm just like, I hear absolutely nothing. And for what felt like an eternity, eventually, all of a sudden, you hear this coughing, choking sound. It was the most beautiful sound oh. in the world. And I know it sounds horrible because it's like your child choking is the most beautiful sound in the world. I was like, yes, because he was getting air. He was getting air. And it wasn't a healthy, robust cry of a baby who just entered the world in a non-traumatic way. It was, a, you know, things like that. And I was like, oh, but that's him. He's, a, he's alive. He's alive. And they were able to get his heart resuscitated. So his heart started pumping again because once you start losing oxygen, you start losing the heart and you start losing all. Then you get brain damage and all these kinds of things. And so time is of the essence. Anyway. He starts choking out and my husband, I just look over at him and he's just 
bawling, just bawling. Like he doesn't know what's happening to his wife. He doesn't know what's happening to his child. And there's, there's nothing he can do except for give me the priesthood blessing he did before we went into the operating room. I right? hope you had a good babysitter. And- <laughs> <laughs> I never let my babies out of my sight. <laughs> no, I'm talking about like, like yeah. for the other two. For the other two. Okay. So this is the <laughs> second birth. This is the second birth. This isn't even the no. third birth. Oh, we've got a third birth story too. <laughs> so this is the second birth. So he comes out. And he's uh, alive, he's breathing, choking, but he's getting air. And I just say, I want to see him. I want to see him. I want to see him. And so they wrap up and there's this little burrito thing whose skin is blue. He looks like a Smurf. He does not look like the normal color of a child does. But um, he has this kind of like choked out kind of breathing pattern and crying, but he's, he's, he's going to be okay. And so my husband looks at me and he, and they're going to take, they're going to take the baby to the ICU because after surgery, I got to stay there at least for another 30 minutes to an hour while they, you know, fix everything back up. And so they get ready to leave. We're like, we were going to take him to the ICU and monitor him and make sure everything's okay. And I'm completely helpless. I can't do anything. I can't move. And so my husband just looks at me like, can I go with our child? And I looked at him. I said, do not let our baby out of your sight. Like, I'm going to be fine. You watch that baby, okay? So that was how he entered the world. Eventually, he was fine. He could breathe on his own. We took him home, and he is a happy, healthy, thriving kid. He is the best. He's got so much energy, and he's just, just a blessing to our home. Anyway, so that's the second, that's the second baby. So eventually it's a couple, three years later and I'm like, I have this aching feeling. I'm like, baby, there's one more. There's one more. We got to do this again. And he's like, are you sure we're going to do this again? And I was like, yes, there's one more. We have to do this again. And um, we did went through all the steps again, got pregnant again, all the, all the pregnancy stuff. This pregnancy, though, I don't know if it was because I was getting older or because my body had already been through so much chaos and trauma. This pregnancy just wiped me out. I was on bed rest. I developed anemia. I didn't have enough blood for me. The baby was taking all the blood and I just was struggling. I ended up losing weight. I had what was called HG, which means you have morning sickness the entire pregnancy. You vomit all the time. You go into the doctors to get IV just to make sure you stay hydrated. And so by the end of the pregnancy I had lost weight and I had uh, was on anemic medication because I didn't have any blood it, it felt like I was determined to bring this child into the world even if it killed me like this this would be the thing and this is the part where I realized just how unhealthy my obsession was with proving my womanness with proving my femininity with proving that that I was willing to put my my life on an operating table just to see that yes we did it anyway we found out we had a, we, this beautiful baby girl and uh, about two-thirds into the pregnancy it was the third trimester where my husband and I had a difficult conversation was that was like we can never do this again it's not worth risking your life it's not worth risking our children's lives this is enough is enough you need you need a mom for your three babies instead of four babies that and no mom that is exactly what he said he said oh. i want our children to have a mother and i want to have a wife i don't want to be a single dad and i was like okay yeah yeah you're right um we'll just finish making it through this one and then and then and then we'll be good so we were thrilled when we found out we we're having a little baby girl and it was like, okay, so we got these two boys and this baby girl on her way and everything. But I was utterly exhausted and in no state to go through any kind of trauma. And so the, we make the appointment. We go through all the procedures again. And it's the morning of the C-section. And I'm just, I'm just completely out of energy. I'm out of everything. I got nothing left in the tank. I can't eat. I don't have enough blood. I don't have what I need. And they're like, okay, we're going to deliver the baby. How are you feeling and everything? I'm like, just, just, just tired. That's all. And they're like, okay, yeah, that's probably normal. It's, you know, 6 a.m. in the morning. I've been up since 4 a.m. for surgery prep. And I'm like, I'm just tired, you know. And so shockingly, the C-section went beautifully she came out perfectly they were able to get her out even though she was transverse breach which was kind of a weird thing but they got her out beautifully she was thriving healthy and happy and I just I just exhaled and I felt like I'm done I did it and it was almost like I was giving myself permission you can die now Blair like this is just this is too much I can't I have nothing left in the tank there's nothing here left for anyone I can't even nurse a baby I can't I can't anything 
And so I got a hold, my baby girl, they put her on your chest right before they go take her and Drew and her left. And I was like, bye bye, baby girl, I love you. And so I'm on the operating table getting surgery again. And this one takes a lot longer because we had decided we're going to surgically sterilize you. So it's difficult for you to get pregnant and unlikely for it to ever happen for you. But we're going to make sure that this never happens for you ever again. And so they're doing the surgery and everything. And I'm just laying there looking at the ceiling. And I just feel this this heavy weighted blanket. It feels as if a dark night sky just, and it was peaceful. That's the weird part. It was so peaceful. It was so comforting. It was so easy to just, I told the anesthesiologist, I was like, I'm just going to take a nap for a second. And he goes, you can't take a nap right now. You you need to stay awake for the surgery. You can, we, we, we can't have you uh, taking a nap. I was like, but I'm just so tired. I just want to take a nap. And they like, no, you need to stick around, you know, and, and the doctor was also commenting while they're operating. And that's a weird thing too, having someone operating you and talking to you at the same time imagine. and talking about your uterus. And she's like, uh, has my uterus in her hands and she's surgically performing a tubal ligation on my fallopian tubes. And she's like, I've never seen anything like this in all my practice of medicine. How did you get pregnant? Like, how is this possible? And we joked around for a minute, you know, but I'm like barely breathing, you know, but I can tell she's trying to keep me awake. She's trying to keep me awake. And at one point I was like, she was like, I've never seen anything like your uterus, you know, and I was like, you can have it. You can take it out. I don't need it anymore. And she got very serious and she's like, you've lost a lot of blood. You need this uterus because it's full of blood and you need blood right now. And I was like, okay. And so as we're talking, I, what I assumed, I just dozed off. I just wanted to take a nap. That was all. Turns out I wasn't napping. <laughs> I was losing consciousness. My heart rate was dropping. And in a weird way, I felt like I was giving my body permission to rest. And rest was the equivalent of dying. And it was just like, you did it, Blair. You crossed the finish line. Beep. <laughs> and that's when I gave myself permission to not fight anymore. Because existing was fighting and I just didn't want to fight anymore. And for however long it took, and I don't know how or why, but the thing that brought me back was the voice of my anesthesiologist saying, hey, I, knew, I wanted to talk to you about something. And I'm blacked out. I can hear a voice, but it seems very far away, like someone calling you from, from, from across a valley. It feels very, very far away. And I'm not I'm completely unresponsive, but in my, in my consciousness hears, you know, the voice of my anesthesiologist and is like, tell me your children's names. You didn't tell me your children's names. And, uh, and I, I remember thinking, and I couldn't recall my children's names. I had lost the ability to recall things. I remember I had children. I had two little boys and I couldn't recall their names. I couldn't speak. I couldn't, I couldn't respond. Everything was just so heavy. It was just so heavy. And then eventually he was like, he was like, can you tell me your daughter's name? Can you tell me my daughter's name? And I woke up. I said, yes, I have a daughter. Her name is Elizabeth. And I started, I had tears in my eyes. I was like, yes, I have a daughter. And he, he goes, he goes, I bet you want to see her again, don't you? I was like, yes, I would very much like to see her again. I would very much like to hold her again. He's like, okay, we're going to fix that. We're going to make sure you see her again. Wow. And I just remember it was just so hard living. It was like, why did living have to be so hard? Why did have to being a woman be so hard? Why couldn't it just come easy? And it wasn't easy. Trying to be a woman almost killed me. But ultimately, lucky for me, I have a happy ending. I got three beautiful babies out of it. I have three thriving children, very healthy. I made it through and I'm sterilized. So that's never going to happen to me ever again. And yes, I still have to take medications and hormones for inducing menstruation and then controlling menstruation and things like that. And maybe eventually I'll have a hysterectomy and that'll change too. But at the end of the day, the, the death part is over <laughs> as far as what it means to try and prove your worth as a human when your body said, you know, maybe not all humans need to do this thing that you're forcing yourself to do. Well, thank you, Blair, for sharing all that. Yeah. Can I ask you a, an offensive question? Please do. And this will probably be the last question. Yeah. Why do you think they're intersex people? <laughs> That's a great question. I think intersex people exist the same reason queer people exist, the same reason minorities exist and why margins exist. It's really a learning and growing opportunity because all of these are facets of what it means to be a godly divine person. I believe that 
if the image of God, if I was made in the image of God, the image of God has got to include me as I am, not necessarily as technology makes me, not necessarily as everything makes me. I am that I might have joy. And so why do intersex people exist? Why do black people exist? Why do white people exist? Because these are all of just the many biological variations that encompass the image of God. And I get to be a part of that. And I didn't know that. I didn't believe that. And that's the funniest part about it. If I truly believed what I was being taught, a couple of things. One, Blair, you're made in the image of God, just the way you are. Two, you are that you might have joy. You don't have to fight. You can just be joyful. And being joyful is enough. And the funny thing is that a lot of people want to say that, you know, your religion was your damnation. And in some ways, there was some toxic aspects of my religion that I internalized. But my religion was also my salvation. I am that I might have joy. I am divine. I am a child of God. That's not just some like cute phrase like I am a child. of No, I am of the divine taxonomy of God. Somewhere upstairs, there's intersex God going, yep. I'm just like you, Blair. You're the image of God, too. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I really, truly believe that. That was beautiful. Thank you for sharing those thoughts. And I love seeing how as people work through differences in identity and differences and like like feeling different or marginalized or oppressed or just not congruent with society, how that can teach us about who God is and our relationship with faith and deity. And I just love your optimism and hope and faith and I can tell that you've put a lot of spiritual and like intellectual work into understanding this and I appreciate people who are willing to invest that time and energy and and learning about themselves and others so thank you for sharing yeah I appreciate that I'm glad I glad I've had the opportunity to share and I think that also shines through sorry shameless plug for my book too that it really is the love of both my body who I am everything about myself and my love of my spirituality and my religion and my faith. It really is about embracing both those things in really healthy, hopeful ways. And I think we need more of that. We just need more of it. Yeah. And Blair, thank you so much for for being on, for sharing your expertise and your story and your faith and, and your hope with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. If you have enjoyed this or other episodes, please consider leaving a review, following us on Instagram or Facebook at Questions from the Closet, or sharing this podcast with someone you love. And as always, please remember that we do not represent the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Brigham Young University. We are not trying to be prescriptive or tell anyone what to think or what to do. You heard three perspectives, and there are many, many more. We encourage you to listen to other voices and hear a wide variety of experiences. If you would like to submit a question or share a comment about today's episode, you can email us at questionsfromthecloset@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Until next time, 